What he did say about me, don't worry me I keep it moving forward to what's ahead of me You're gonna see, I'm not gonna waste energy Cause I'm free, and I'm a freak All the people I love, I try to keep We get deep, keep it straight And we're never gonna stay asleep Finally, what he did say about me, don't worry me I keep it moving forward to what's ahead of me You're gonna see, I'm gonna be And you're gonna remember me What up, what up? This is episode 16 of Unconfirmed Transactions. I'm your host, Dan Anderson, of the Bitcoin Ballers, the Buttcoin Butters, and the, co- the Dojo Distraction, as well as a collector of rare pepes. I'd like to cover on today's show a number of new developments in the Bitcoin space, which have me excited, as well as just the general um, mm, tempo, or maybe temper of the community as I see it right now. And I think there's a lot of interesting things happening. I think September's turned out to be a fairly interesting month for Bitcoin. We'll see where it goes in the winter. But one of the things I've been noticing, and I'm sure a lot of people listening now have been watching it um, or have heard of it, um, it seems like Bitcoin's become a pretty mainstream meme. I think that's a really nice development. That's kind of a, That kind of a thing is money can't buy that kind of exposure or um, reach. That's something you kind of earn and it's something that happens naturally. So I think that's really exciting to see. And what I mean when I say that is that if you have seen, there's a show called Startup. It's on Crackle. And the basic premise is that they're making a altcoin called GenCoin. This is a universe that exists. Um, it coexists with Bitcoin, and but it's like an altcoin, and it's set in Miami, and it's you know it's it's really Bitcoin. It's like the story of Bitcoin told through an altcoin. <laughs> like Satoshi is a uh, a pretty woman, so like. It's, it's very made for TV, but it, it's, been, it's been interesting so far. I haven't finished all of it, but it's, it's on Crackle. Check it out. I just think that's a really neat um, demonstration of this Bitcoin as mainstream meme. And that's not even mentioning the more obvious example, which is, of course, Mr. Robot, which has been this season um, very, very strong on the Bitcoin references. So if, if you're not following Mr. Robot, it is a hard show to get into. It's not very friendly. At, um, it's, it, it's, it's definitely got a very targeted audience, I think. Uh, like I was watching it with Emma the other night and she hasn't been watching it. And it's just, I, I could tell it was just like, this is not something you can just drop yourself into. You have to really buy into a lot of the, uh, the plot devices. Like, the, like for example, the lead character talks to the screen and to the viewer as if they were like part of his like mania. So that's it, it. It kind of is a weird aspect of that show. But what's the Bitcoin mention that's happening is essentially in this world, there is a company that looks a lot like Bank of America that has created an e coin. So it's like a they made a bank coin or a bank chain or a bank cryptocurrency, and it's competing directly with Bitcoin. And um, that's really cool to see. Um, again, it gets to the point of the Bitcoin meme going mainstream. Um, so, you know, it's like first they laugh at you, first they fight you, and then you win. This seems to fall under the then you win category when Bitcoin is a mainstream meme and not a um, curiosity headline of sorts. You know, I think that's really interesting shift that's happening right now that we should recognize and appreciate. Additionally, something I just saw today, which feeds right into this train of thought is that um de la soul put out a song recently which mentions mentions bitcoin specifically so i mean it's not a small time um you know bitcoin rap only group or whatever or some sort of like fun group it's de la soul is a pretty famous cultural icon so it's really interesting to see bitcoin on his lips as well or their lips um let's see let me just play that clip real quick from de la soul and we'll hear that and then i'll come back to talk about other stuff because that's that's pretty much all i had to say on the mainstreaminess 
of Bitcoin at this point. So let it roll. Cancel the stallion, hold your horses. Kickstart your life and cut your losses. Look how we did it, my your boy still got it. I quit drinking, I quit the narcotics. Life's a bitch, but she's seeing a therapist. This hip hop done really to canvas hot. We got stoops and Vander Rose to sit on. Bitcoin's Vivian Mads to bid on. But we cautious, never undermine the hate and turn a spell on your evil forces. But this ain't the cha-cha two-step. Been a rider ever since the Schwinn goose neck. The buck stops here, ain't no who's next. Oh, I guess one more quick point on mainstreaminess of Bitcoin is the new um, iPhone update, I believe, includes the ability to send Bitcoin via iMessage natively. So that's actually a very interesting development. That is, I believe, using Circle. Um, Yeah, that's pretty neat. I don't know if that'll get used a lot for, like, you know, the main use case of Bitcoin, but it is nice that for the mainstreaming of it, for that to be the case. Um. Oh, and did you notice on that De La Soul track that he mentions bidding on Bitcoin, which suggests to me that he's using um, an exchange and not local Bitcoins. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, I was at a recent BitDevs meetup and fudgeability was coming up and as it always does. And what I thought was funny is people have this, people have it in their minds that these chain analysis companies and companies doing chain analysis, which is obviously a separate thing, but like this, they're doing the same thing, but they're, you know, separate kinds of companies, um, that they are omniscient or like they, they basically are reading the copy and believing it. So, you know, when a chain analysis company comes out and says that they can de-anonymize a bunch of, a bunch of transactions, like, you know, is that, isn't that like their sales pitch that you're taking as fact? So consider that, um, and also consider like the fact that you know we have darknet markets that are using Bitcoin successfully for a long time at high volumes, so that's a real piece of data to consider. And you know, is what these chain analysis companies is what they're saying data, or is it sales copy? Something to consider, uh, because what I think is that these chain analysis companies they can establish flows. So they can see capital flows within the blockchain um, with some degree of confidence. We don't know necessarily what that degree of confidence is. They They might be very confident, but that's not necessarily provably, you know, accurate in what they have. And flows aren't necessarily tied to identity. So, you know, Coinbase or whatever can block you or delete your KYC account because they think that your flow or your money is flowed in from an unsavory place like a gambling site or darknet market or whatever. But that's not tied to your identity necessarily. Your KYC account is tied to your identity, but the establishment of the flow has nothing to do with your identity. So I think that's something to consider and also consider that as time goes on and people use more hardware wallets and people get paid in Bitcoin potentially. Um, I know that people that work on darknet markets are getting paid in Bitcoin, but like, let's just imagine as there's fewer centralized KYC on ramps and off ramps. And that's, I mean, look at the rise of local Bitcoins right now on Coindance. It, it's out of control. I actually had the pleasure this week of tagging along on a um, a local bitcoins deal it was it was pretty fun and the guy asked about monero which i thought was interesting so um it was i mean local bitcoins look really easy to use i mean you just meet it's like it's just like a meeting engine you know a matching engine so you know it's like the tinder local bitcoins is the tinder for bitcoin so you know, you, you, you mash each other and you meet up and you, you fuck real quick and, you know, maybe you fuck again later. <laughs> but no one gets fucked. You know what I mean? Um, 
What was I talking about? What a, what a shitty podcast. Don't listen to this. Oh, what was I talking about? Fungibility, maybe. Oh, what I wanted to bring up was there was, I think Dyer dropped this in the dojo or Joe Mama or Exec Connect. It goes by many names. He dropped a link to this story. I'll drop a link in the show notes. Basically, there's this service called, um, I think it's ZDOS or no VDOS, V hyphen DOS. And it's a software as a service um, or a subscription model service where you can pay like $30 a month and you can perform a DDoS against whatever target you like. With one exception, they banned all Israeli IPs because they're an Israeli company and they don't want, you know, problems locally. That's also the same way that apparently Russian internet quote-unquote cyber criminals operate is they try not to buy, um, like say someone has a botnet and some of those computers are Russian. They won't buy the Russian ones. And so that's part of their their security um, approach in terms of like not having local problems. But that aside, the interesting thing to me about this whole VDOS story was that they were accepting Bitcoins and their Bitcoin on an off-ramp was Coinbase. And all they did to obfuscate their activity to Coinbase was they had a US-based server node which would receive the Bitcoin and then it would, from there, send the Bitcoin onto their Israeli servers. So there was just one server in between in the US and because Coinbase wasn't aware of VDOS as a, I don't know, uh, a a bad flow, I guess, uh, it, it was totally fine. So that's something to consider is like, obviously these companies, even though they can do analysis, doesn't mean that they will be good at it or, you know, able to act on it or even want to act on it. Um, it reminds me of those kids that were used that had hacked, quote unquote, again, quote unquote, hacked uh, a darknet market um, and were using Coinbase. So think there's been much ado about nothing in regards to chain analysis although i i am pretty um content to see changes always made in the direction of fungibility so one of the pleasures of the recent bitnet bit devs meetup was that blue matt the bitcoin core developer uh, matt corallo was at the bit devs meetup he is currently in new york city for a um I don't know what they call it, but essentially they're doing sessions um, teaching people how to code Bitcoin here. Like maybe it's like a, a fellowship of sorts. I don't, I don't know what you call it, but basically he's teaching developers how to Bitcoin develop. And he said that he's basically just like brain dumping at people. But some of the things that, um, one of the things that he's done is compact blocks and so it was really interesting to be at a meetup where we're 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 looking at a concept like compact compact blocks and the guy at the head of the room can be like oh matt can you explain this for us and he would so like if if you're in new york city and you have the time to go to a bit devs meetup i highly recommend it it is some of the highest quality content in bitcoin it's also very it's it's almost like so the people that run the BitDevs meetup are basically doing an Exotica live show because there's no recording, there's no photos, and you know there's a big screen at the front of the room. They just go through pull requests, and at the end we go get beer, and you meet and talk about stuff that just you know does not make it to the internet, and it's from people that are like deeply, deeply seated in the Bitcoin world. So, I mean, some of the things that. I heard this week or were in regards to like a bit proposal that is um, not published, but has been written up and will be published soon. Like that's the kind of insider info that you can get. If you go to a bit does meetup, I would love to plug them again and again until completion. So again, bit does meetup, check it out. 
it's at the USV office usually. They have a few different tracks where like sometimes it will be in this um Rise co-working space in New York City. But um usually it's in the USV office. What a rambly ramp. Like I don't even know where that rant started. Okay. Next on the list. I um well, one of the things that I overheard or was told at the recent bid devs meetup was um there's a lot of confidence that the bitcoin etf will go through just for kicks i i actually wrote to the sec they have they're open for comments right now on the rule change that will allow the bitcoin etf and i wrote them a letter and it's just neat to get published on the sec website not that it's hard you just write them a, write them an email so uh, I'll, I'll drop that in the show notes. You can see what I said. Basically, all I said was that I think a Bitcoin ETF would be um, a lot safer for investors because, I mean, people are trading Bitcoin, like, but they're trading it directly. And because they're trading it directly, and they have to trust these custodians of those Bitcoins. And so those custodians like Bit- Bitfinex, you know, might not be so secure. Whereas if you had a Bitcoin ETF and you were trading it, you would be trading Bitcoin indirectly and in a more regulated and secure way. And that would be an obvious benefit to investors. So that's all I said. Um, But what I've been hearing is that the ETF is likely to get approved. And so what I did briefly this week is I looked at the history of ETFs. And so basically Vanguard has a good write-up on it. Almost all the investing websites have a nice write-up on the history of ETFs. Vanguard goes back to Dutch trade trading companies like a long time ago doing sort of pooled investing. But I think that's because their logo is like a, sh- a ship and for their branding, they like to go that back that far. Everyone else tracks it back to Canada. In 1990, there was a thing called TIPS. And... That was like the first ETF. And then, I mean, other people would say there's one in the U.S. that is the first ETF. But basically, in the early 90s, ETFs were invented. ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. And it's different than something like um, a mutual fund where you trade it at the end of the day. An exchange traded fund can be traded during the day um, more freely, not at the end of the day. And a lot, most ETFs are index funds. There are several types of ETFs. I'm I'm sure plenty of people know more about ETFs than me, but like I, I'm trying to learn about ETFs if a Bitcoin ETF is coming down the pipeline. Um, but anyways, there are several types of ETFs. There are ones that hold stocks. There are even even more recently, there are actively traded ETFs. That apparently is a new innovation. Um, there are commodity ETFs. There are currency ETFs. And what's interesting is that um, currency ETFs and I think commodity ETFs are a new... Those are new. So... I think 2004 is when those were allowed. There was a rule change that allowed for ETFs to invest in such things or offer that as a product. And that didn't happen until 2004. And so that's when you have gold ETFs, silver ETFs, things like that. So what's relatively um, noteworthy here is that ETFs invented in the early 90s, ETFs not available for currencies and commodities until 2004. Bitcoin invented in 2009, pretty much launched in 2010, early 2010. And, you know, if 2016, 2017, we have a Bitcoin ETF, I would say that that's a fairly rapid um, route to ETF for Bitcoin. Um, considering the timelines and how long it took for there to be a currency ETFs. Something to think about. 
I mean, think like so like 1990, first ETF. Currency, 2004, that's 14 years before you have currency ETFs. Knowing that currencies existed well before the invention of ETFs. Then you have Bitcoin. I mean, brand new. No one knew about it in 2010. And now it's six, seven years later. We're going to have an ETF. Um, That's pretty rapid. I'm still trying to think about what the implications of that are. I don't necessarily know. I do think, though, that if a Bitcoin ETF comes around, I'll probably sell my Bitcoin and buy the ETF. I think because of the the tax efficiencies that are the tax advantages to an ETF, that you have somebody um, regulating that ETF and that you have somebody that you can, you know, bring a class action lawsuit against in the event of an issue. I think the as a speculator and investor, I think the ETF is clearly a better option than dealing with the underlying Bitcoin. And I don't think this will change anything for the um, the darknet markets. I think those people will continue to use Bitcoin directly, and that will be great. But what it should do is it should bring in more liquidity into the market. So there's about 1,400 ETFs, maybe 1,500. I think it depends how you classify ETFs. There are some things that are ETF like that might be included in that number, but there's a number floating around that's like 1400 to 1500 ETFs. And those ETFs have around $2 trillion in them. Um, So that's quite a lot of cheddar in ETFs. So if there's a Bitcoin ETF and, you know, Bitcoin is available to more mainstream investors through such a vehicle, surely there will be some investment in that ETF. I don't know what that amount will be, but it could be potentially hundreds of millions and maybe even like one or two billion through an ETF. Like that's just guessing, pure guessing. But I think I think that's possible. And if we have such a situation where there is increased volume and liquidity provided by these ETFs, the people dealing with Bitcoin directly on these darknet markets will have an increasingly more stable because it's more because it has more volume and liquidity that theoretically should introduce more stability. And I think in that situation, you could even see darknet markets begin to facilitate larger trades because i mean think about drugs those are fairly i mean relatively low value transactions because they they deal pretty much explicitly with not explicitly exclusively with drugs um and through the postal service so like you can't send a pallet of drugs through the U.S. Postal Service and act like that's not that's going to work. Um, but if you have Bitcoin, is more less volatile, more stable, more volume, more liquidity, it becomes more useful to the dark markets. And so, I like that recipe. I think that's I think that's like a win-win. I think that's a synergy or something like that. And from there, I'd like to, now that I've just touched on darknet markets, I read a really great little intro. There's a um, there's a manual for people that are inspecting drugs sent through the mail that it goes that is actually was written by a couple of police officers. It's um, worth a read. I found this through Darknet Market Noobs. But basically, it, it kind of outlines how inspection of mail works. Oh, I get a phone call. Hold on a second. Okay, anyways, I, what, I was, um, what I was talking about was what this manual reveals about how mail inspection works. So basically, 
What it advises is that there are some signs when a sender is sending shady things. So a sender would be like, you know, creeped out a vendor might, I'm going to say vendor and sender, but like a sender might be asking a lot of weird questions about delivery. A sender might, um, the package itself, like there might be, there might be weird about what the contents are. The contents, it might smell like oil grease or some sort of like masking odor. Um, so those are some sort of like vague signs that Sander might be sending something sketchy. And then beyond that, the the receiver, you know, like if, they, if they're using a fake name or a name that doesn't match, like a lot of people might think, oh, I'll just use a fake name when I receive something to me. But actually, a fake name is a, is a strong sign of shadiness. So, you know, that's why most of these darknet markets recommend to use your real name. Additionally, what this thing indicates is that um, the mail rooms are actually not within the jurisdiction of local authorities, local and state authorities. So they have to work closely with the post office. And some most post offices have some sort of... Um, person you can contact for your local law enforcement to um, do this kind of inspection but the way it recommends doing inspection is not not publicly within the facility but sort of in like a side room and they recommend using dogs so trained dogs and trained dogs can't just sit on the assembly line not the assembly line but like the the male uh what would we call it conveyor belt like you can't just have like a, a dog sniffing dog by the conveyor belt just sniffing everything because they get bored they get tired so what you have to do is put aside things that are suspicious and then you know individually inspect those with um a dog and then another i mean another um, indicator is like size, so like larger packages, are probably more suspicious. International packages are more suspicious. And say a dog does indicate that a package may contain drugs. And what they do from there is they do a controlled delivery. And essentially what that is, is an undercover police officer brings that package to your door. And they have you, you know, you receive the package. And what will happen then is the police will arrive at your door and they will try to, um, I mean, they may have a warrant at that point, which will mean they will look for, well, they'll try to find drugs in that box you received because they haven't opened that box yet. Probably. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Like you can't just open mail. You need a warrant to do that. So what they would do is they would, you know, come into you. And they would look through your house for drugs and they would probably squeeze you. So if you're receiving drugs in the mail, um, it's probably safest just to get them to your home. Because one of the other things that the, this write-up mentions is that a lot of people try to receive mail at like drop houses, which will be like unused addresses or empty lots. Or like they'll come up to the mail guy and be like, hey, do you have a package for like so-and-so? even though it's like an empty house, that's actually a strong indicator of shadiness to these people. So the safest thing is just get it in your real name to your real house in personal amounts. And uh, you're probably pretty good. Uh, Additionally, what would be ideal is to keep a clean house, which means you don't have drugs in your house. So, and, and then say you get a package you know, don't, don't be a scaredy cat when you sign for it. Get your package. If you have concerns about the potentials of a controlled delivery, you might want to just leave that package aside, unopened, chilling for a few days. And if a few days pass and there's no issue, you know, open it up and, and enjoy your package. But um, the reason for doing that is that even if you get drugs sent to your address in your name, and even if you sign for them, and even if you bring them into your house, 
the burden for the police is to prove that you knew that that box contained drugs and it was in fact like you who ordered it. That's a very hard thing to prove, especially if you never open the package when they come into your house, especially if they never find any drugs in your house. Um, and so that's why what the, the Darknet Market new website suggests is just keeping your mouth shut. So like, let's say there is a controlled delivery. Hopefully you haven't opened that package. The police will likely do two things. They'll do the good guy cop thing first, and then the bad guy cop thing second. And the good guy cop thing will be like, listen, like, you know, you're a small fry. Like, we don't, we don't give a shit about you. Like, why don't you just tell us who sent you the drugs so that, you know, we can go after them and we'll, like, let you off. But that's, you know, they're just trying to get you to admit that you knew there were drugs within those packages. So you should just keep your mouth shut. And then if you keep your mouth shut, they'll probably go hard on you then and be, be like, you know, look, like you're going to get, you're, you're going to get in a lot of trouble, you know, blah, 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 blah. And in that case as well, just keep your mouth shut. And so, you know, eventually what they'll end up having is, you know, it's, you've received a package that contains drugs. They have no way to prove that you in fact ordered that package and that you had any idea there were drugs within it. And at that point, they'll probably just let you go. But they'll keep the drugs. That's um, one of the things I read recently on the Darknet Market noobs. I thought that was interesting information to have. Uh, educational purposes only. And entertainment purposes only. Um, what else? This has been like the tangent show. I actually had show notes for this show and then it just became a rant upon rant upon rant. Um, let's see what else. There was a great Coindesk article that just came out and it's by Pete Rizzo and it's about like the summer of clunkers or something like that. You should check it out. I'll drop a, sh a link in the show notes, but it basically is like, you know, blockchain fell apart this summer and it's real funny um i actually really enjoy retrospectives like this so it's sometimes it's very difficult if you follow bitcoin as closely as the people who listen to the show do to have like a retrospective view on what's happening you know how like um greyhounds chase like the rabbit around the track like that's kind of the way in which people follow bitcoin um but pete rizzo's article has a sort of retrospective feel to it which is very nice like, it's good for context, and I enjoyed it a lot. What I also really enjoyed recently was watching, re-watching The Rise and Rise of Bitcoin. That is, I think that's from 2013. It's, like, right when Butterfly Labs are, is, like, coming out. Um, it's, like, the first run-up to 200. Um, it's a really nice... To look at that then and like think about Bitcoin now, a lot's happened in three years. It's really worth re-watching it to appreciate it because even Charlie Shrem is not even in jail at that point. It's I mean, they're going with Charlie Shrem to look. Um, he's like looking for new office spaces. Um, Trade Hill out of Mission, Cal Mission San Francisco is looking for new offices. I actually contacted all these people afterwards. I was like, you know what? That'd be really interesting to contact a lot of these people and find out where they are now. And I contacted like five of them and none of them got back to me. So they can all fuck themselves. Um, what else? I feel like I had so many more things to say. And then when I started talking, you got whatever the fuck you got. Uh, rare pepes are a thing now. This is maybe... My least favorite scam, but I can't help it. Uh, basically, what rare pepes are is there's counterparty has this these SOG cards, these spells of Genesis cards, and there's a meme of rare pepes, which is just like a picture of this frog in many different ways, and they're like, "Oh, this is a rare photo of that frog." And now people have used that meme and combined it with 
counterparty to make rare Pepe cards. It's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you'll see it uh, as time goes on more. Rare Pepe's. They're, they're the new thing. It's like the Dogecoin of counterparty. You know, but money money is memes. M- memes are money. So that's that's a new thing. Oh, I think I'm just tired now. I'm tired out with Bitcoin. So I will I will leave this here. I guess I'll listen back and decide whether or not it's publishable. Not that anything I've made is ever publishable, especially that latest fluffy pony interview. People the I mean, I wish I could audio edit, but I I can't. I just I just cannot. Okay, guys, so that's, that is the chit-chat recap for today. I hope you enjoyed your stay. Please put your tray tables in the upright position. We will be landing in about 10 minutes. Thank you. Okay, I was just listening back as I was um, putting together today's episode, and there are several things that I accidentally left off when I um, went off script, off my little list of agenda things to do. But one agenda point that I would really like to make sure got out there, and I, I kind of have hidden it at the end of this episode, as it is sort of nefarious in a way, I believe it is um, probably time to call for attacks on Monero. I think that is the economically rational thing to do. I think, you know, we should attack all potential Bitcoin competitors at any scale. You know, I think the DAO hacker is probably the, you know, the white knight of Bitcoin's blockchain by just eviscerating, throwing a hand grenade into Ethereum. Um, the way in which I believe Monero can be attacked is that in Monero, you have essentially transactions. And when you make a, make your own transaction, you use ring signatures. And the way that works in Monero 
is you need to choose three other transactions on the blockchain and you kind of like tag them as inputs. Um, and then there becomes ambiguity as to which one of those input outputs are being used. Um, or another way to put it is that there's, you have a public key and then you pick three other public keys and then you sign your transaction and it's not clear which public key signed it. But because Monero gets its entropy from the blockchain, that means it can be Sybil attacked. And what you could do is you could buy Monero and then create arbitrary transactions, just spam the network with transactions to become a large portion of that system. So in the last year, there have been 200,000 transactions on the Monero blockchain. The fee, I believe, is 0.01 Monero per kilobit. I don't know what the transaction size is in Monero, but let's assume that there is it's possible to have a kilobyte transaction on Monero. That means you're paying 0.01 Monero. And I don't know what the minimum amount to be sent is, but I assume it's less than that. So let's just take 0.01 as like the per fee, per transaction fee. And if there's 200,000 transactions, if you want to become 50% of Monero's like entropy pool or randomness or mixing pairs partners you would have to generate 200,000 transactions so 200,000 times 0.01 i believe that's 2000 monero so we would take 2000 monero or at current cost something like $20,000 to become most of their entropy and that means when people choose public keys on the blockchain like there's a, a large probability that they'll choose your transactions and in doing so they'll become um, no longer ambiguous to you and what you could do with that information is you could sell it you could also just announce um, you could announce all those keys that you control you might not even need to um, generate that many transactions but like generate a, a sufficient number and then announce that you've been doing that and then cast doubt on the whole system that way um, you could also create um, some sufficient number like maybe 10 to 20 percent or 30 percent at a lower cost and then announce those as like you know these all these transactions and then kind of show show that you've de-anonymized a number of them not de-anonymized, but kind of like unmixed things on chain. And this might result in Monero having to um, hard fork or soft fork such that those things that you've announced as being like uh, compromised and known are now no longer part of their randomness pool, but that would require a hard fork or a soft fork. I'm not sure. But like these are, there's a number of ways to attack Monero in this way. And, you know, because of the price rise, because they are focusing on things like, you know, darknet markets, which is like a bread and butter for Bitcoin as well, as far as I'm concerned. And now that I've been on a local Bitcoins buy where somebody requested Monero and I hear that more people are requesting Monero from these local Bitcoin sellers. You know, yeah, I think Bitcoin, not, I think people who are invested in Bitcoin should attack Monero. And this is a suggested way to do it. And additionally, uh, when I was re-listening to the Bitcoin ETF bit that I had, it might be worth pointing out the difference between the Bitcoin ETF and GBTC. And my understanding is that GBTC is a closed fund, closed-ended fund, which means there's a set number of Bitcoins, and you can buy and sell those Bitcoins. But as if more demand exists, they, they don't increase the number of bitcoins that underlie that that uh that product there's a it's a set amount of bitcoins and that's why you actually see the premium the premium is because the demand um is sort of like larger than the supply there with a bitcoin etf as people buy the beat the bitcoin etf you actually the underlying asset of bitcoin will be have they'll buy more bitcoins 
And because they'll be buying more Bitcoins and they'll be selling of Bitcoins, um, that should work to keep the price really close to the actual Bitcoin price. And it might be the, the thing, the Bitcoin ETF itself might start driving the price of the exchanges. Like that could happen as well. Depends on how much volume is there. I'm pretty sure with Bitcoin ETFs, there's like, there's like preferred people in ETFs world where like, if you have enough money, you can sort of buy shares from the Bitcoin ETF or the Winklevosses like directly, like you buy like big blocks of the ETF and you do that, I believe by bringing them Bitcoin. So like, let's say you want to buy the Winklevoss Bitcoin ETF, it, like, a, like a big block of it. I'm pretty sure the way you do that is you bring them Bitcoin and that gets like deposited into the ETF and you get your shares and now you can share, sell those shares um, to smaller fish and the smaller fish just have to trade on the exchanges. But like if you're a big fish, I'm pretty sure you can even trade in your ETF and get Bitcoin back. But that's at a high level with like large sums of money. So that's just something to think about. Some addition to the Bitcoin ETF that I talked about earlier. And one last thing is I, I actually met the... Um, the guy that's doing this Numeri project, I don't know if you've heard of Numeri, but essentially what it is, is um, it's an attempt to open source and use machine learning for trading. And the way it works is Numeri has data sets, like anonymized data sets. My understanding is that there's no when these data sets don't contain like the stock trading tickers or like what commodity it is, it's mostly just like numbers and dates and volumes and stuff like that. And then they give that data. And then what people do with it is they apply machine learning to this data. And my understanding, and this is my recent understanding of machine learning is that it uses vector based math to kind of uh, create predictions about like uh, number sets so like you know based on this value these numbers here like we we have sets of numbers like what would be the next number in that set based on this calculation and then once these machine learning people come up with their results they deliver that to numeri or like they give them like back their model of that data set and then numeri trades on that information and then they pay out in Bitcoin if it's like a good trade. Okay, so it's it's still not I'm I'm not an expert at this. It's it's a pretty complicated concept. But what's interesting is so Numeri doesn't reveal what they're trading to the people that are like giving them trading information. And then the people that are giving them the information, they don't give Numeri their like underlying code. They just give them like the actionable intelligence. And um, I asked him if they were, they had beat the market, and he said that he they can't tell you they they can't comment on that because something about like it's like advertising it a security or something like that. Um, but he could tell me that in the last month they've given out thirteen thousand dollars in rewards to the people that are playing this game, and I think the guy's background is in doing similar like analysis for these kinds of companies. So here's what I think the 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 business model is of Numeri. So I think that this their their CEO was at one of these companies and he had information that he wanted to sell, but there was no marketplace he could anonymously sell it at. And so he created such a marketplace and essentially what they're doing is they they have these they have these anonymous data sets and these anonymous people providing them data but i think the anonymous people like who would have a specialization in machine learning stock market data i think it would probably be people with access to proprietary systems at these like big companies and so what they really did is they've created a marketplace where they can get proprietary trading data anonymously like it's it's pretty smart it's pretty clever it's like a backdoor that they found it's not exactly insider trading but it is um getting around like seeing uh non-competes and um what's it called non-disclosure agreements and stuff like that i'm pretty sure 
that is their business model. So that's something to follow, I think, is Numerai, just because it's it's using Bitcoin for like the right reasons. <laughs> All right. Uh, this was just supposed to be a quick uh, addendum to uh, the episode. So I'll end it now. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. They call me a really trendsetter, making life real better, breaking order like a leader now. Follow, pop a pop in the collar, yeah, hustle a dollar, you can't touch it's like MC Hammer. Eat my mum's string hopper, jump in the chopper, yeah, chop up a mango with salt and pepper. Holla, 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 true scholar with the nonna, and I'm here to shine the light on the matter. At the border, I see the patroller, cruising past in their car. Creeping in my socks and slipper, Mexicans say hola. Cruising past in their car, <laughs> hiding in my Toyota Corolla. Everybody say yalla. Hiding in my Toyota Corolla Everybody say yellow